Well, friends, as always, it's good to be with you to pray together and sing together, hear God's word read, and now we come to the Bible to hear it preached, and we need God's help as always if anything good is going to happen in this time, and our confidence is that he is always good and faithful to his people because that's the kind of God he is. So let's go to him in prayer and ask him to be with us now as we'll look to the word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do rejoice and find great comfort in the fact that everything that could ever be required of us, you've given us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we come, covered in his blood and righteousness that we pray. And we ask now, Father, that you would show yourself to be faithful to us yet again. On so many Lord's days, we come to you and we open your word and we ask for help and you are always faithful to give it. Show us yourself from your word. Show us ourselves as we really are. And show us our Savior, who is the atonement for our sins and who is our righteousness, who has secured our resurrection. And as we see him, we pray that you would stir us up, stir us in love toward you and in love toward one another. And may we leave here eager to love our neighbor. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we are continuing on a trek through the book of Genesis. We are, I think, nine or ten sermons in now out of a plan 22. We are in the portion of the book of Genesis where we're considering Abraham's life. And we'll be considering Abraham for a number of weeks because there are a number of chapters about him and what the Lord did through him and promised through him. And as I've said several times, I'd just like to go ahead and make this plain. I realize that Abraham's name is not Abraham until Genesis chapter 17, but I will use Abraham and Abram interchangeably together. I'm talking about the same person. So there's a lot going on today. We're going to be looking at chapter 12 and verse 10 through the end of chapter 14. There's a lot going on today in these chapters on Abraham. There's a lot of grace. There's a lot of promises. And in some of these chapters about Abraham's life, chapter 12 and 15 and 17, there are promises and a covenant that is made. There is faith demonstrated at points by Abraham. In fact, he is held up by the Apostle Paul as the model of justification by faith. That is, we are declared righteous on account of Christ, and that is applied to us through faith. Abraham is an example of how God does that with his people. There are acts of faith that Abraham does. There are deeds of righteousness that he does. And there is a lot of sin. Abraham, it turns out, is a sinner like you and me. All of this is instructive for us, and it's helpful because it teaches us a lot about God. It teaches us about his ways with us. It teaches us a lot about our salvation. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10. And as I've already said, we're going to be looking at Genesis 12, 10 through the end of chapter 14 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about that. We're going to get the words to the sermon text, I'm pretty sure, up here on the screen behind me, and you'll be able to follow along in those ways. We're going to refer to the text throughout, so you will be helped to have the scripture in front of you. My plan for us today is to preach effectively two parts and then a brief conclusion. In part one, we're going to consider three points from chapter 12. In part two, we're going to consider three points from chapter 14. So part one would include chapter 12 and 13. Excuse me, I misspoke. 
So I think you're with me enough. We're going to go ahead and jump into part one where we're going to consider three points from chapters 12 and 13. Number one, for the copious note takers in the room, Abram and Sarai in Egypt. Abram and Sarai in Egypt. We're going to look at verses 10 to 20 of chapter 12. And just by way of announcement, public service kind of stuff, this is by far the longest piece of part one. So don't be alarmed by that. In verse 10 of chapter 12, you can put your eyes there and you can see that a famine drives Abram and his household down to Egypt, drives him out of the land that God had called him into and down into Egypt. Now, in all of this, it's kind of a cool observation, I think, that Abraham is going to serve as a kind of pattern for the nation of Israel. Israel is going to do the exact same thing. If you know the story coming up, Jacob and his children, his whole household, are going to be driven from the land down to Egypt because of famine. They, too, will have dealings with Pharaoh. They, too, will be brought out of Egypt by God and into the promised land. Just an interesting observation in terms of how redemptive history so often has these kinds of patterns in it that are useful for us to observe. Another thing to to note, I think, is that this is an example, this being called out of the land God had brought him into, Abram is, and being driven to Egypt because of famine and hardship. This is an example of what occurs so many times in Scripture. God makes a promise. And then something happens, often in the immediate aftermath of that promise that seems to negate the promise or at best call it into question. Here, God has promised to give Abram and his offspring a land. He promised him that in chapter 12. He's going to reiterate that promise again later in this text. But as it stands in chapter 12 and verse 10, Abram can't even stay in the land that God had called him to because there's no food to eat. He's driven out of it. Suffice it to say that God's people have always had to live by faith and not by sight. Abram is faced with a decision as to what to do. And we're going to see that he doesn't exactly handle things in an exemplary way. Regarding going to Egypt in a time of famine, this would have been a common thing, no doubt, in the world at this time. Egypt was a very developed and powerful nation. And don't forget that the Nile River flowed through it. Every year, like clockwork, you could depend upon the flooding of the Nile Basin, which would have provided fertility for food to grow. This meant that even if there were famines elsewhere, often Egypt had food. So Abram and his household, they're going to go down to Egypt because food is there. They're going to go as sojourners. What does that mean? Well, it means that they don't have rights. It means that they don't have protection. There's no legal recourse, and Abram knows this. And so, in verses 11 to 13, Abram is going to come up with a plan. You can put your eyes on verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he says to his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And this is affirmed by the Egyptians later. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So say that you're my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. These are interesting words for one of the patriarchs of God's people to speak. Abram is clearly and understandably afraid of what could happen to him as a sojourner in a foreign land. 
with no protection, no legal recourse, no rights. He is concerned as to how things will go, and so he convinces his wife to say that she is his sister. And in verses 14 to 16, we see that this results in Sarai being taken into Pharaoh's house to be Pharaoh's wife. So she is taken into what we assume was Pharaoh's harem. And Pharaoh dealt well. We see this in the text. He dealt well with Abram because of Sarai. And this was Abram's plan. It's working as he designed it to, as he intended it to. Sarah, tell them that you are my sister so that it will go well for me, and it does. In other words, Abram sold his wife out to defilement out of fear and out of a desire that things would go well for him. Now, nonetheless, verse 17, put your eyes there. The Lord sent plagues on Pharaoh's house because of Sarah, because there is infidelity, there's adultery, there's defilement happening. And then in verses 18 and the beginning of 19, ironically, it is not Abram who does the righteous thing. It is Pharaoh. He approaches Abram because of all of this and says, what have you done? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? I would, implication, I wouldn't have done that had I known. Yet, latter half of verse 19 and verse 20, we see that in an act of kindness and mercy, Pharaoh lets Abram go. And he lets Sarah go. And he lets them take all their stuff with them. So, the way all of this unfolds is, frankly, nothing short of remarkable. Especially when you consider that this is a book about the redemption of God's people and the fact that Abraham is going to be set up as such a pattern for how God saves his people. This man interacts this way with effectively a pagan king. It's instructive for us as we look at this as to the nature of God's grace and the nature of our salvation. Remember that Abram is a man God chose in grace. He called him, as we've thought about, out of paganism. Abram was living on the other side of the river with his kindred, and he was worshiping other gods, and God took him and led him and made promises to him. Abraham, as he will be known, is called the man of faith by Paul. Consider, though, Abraham's life. Even as he believed God and walked with God in faith and is called the man of faith, his faith faltered at points. And even as he did upright things, even as he did good works, we're going to see some wisdom and humility from Abram in this text today. We're going to see him do other things that are upright in later chapters. Even as he did those good things, he often sinned magnificently at points. In this particular situation, it seems that Pharaoh is more concerned with uprightness than Abraham is. Not only that, he shows mercy toward Abraham and his household. Abraham is the one who is the liar in this text. Abraham is the one who acts out of selfishness in this text. Pharaoh is the one who acts righteously. He is the one who is unselfish 
And it seems that he is even more concerned about Sarai's well-being than Abraham is. When Pharaoh finds out the truth that Sarai is Abram's wife, he stops the adultery. He doesn't continue it. He confronts Abraham. He even rebukes Abraham for lying to him. He doesn't kill Abraham, which would have been pretty normal. He could have. He didn't. More than that, he had been treating Abram really well because of Sarah. He'd been giving him things. That's quite clear. And he doesn't even demand that that stuff be given back. He says, take it. And he expels them from the country, but in doing so, he gives orders to his men so that they would safely be able to exit. It's astonishing. It's almost like the text is set up in such a way where it's like Pharaoh the righteous, Abraham the sinner. But yet Abraham is God's chosen man, this man of faith. So I want to just say this right now before we go any further. Sin is wrong. Amen? Sin is wrong. Sin is destructive. We should flee from it, and we should pursue righteousness. Those things are not up for debate. That is crystal clear in the Scriptures. And this account is one of countless in the Scriptures that should cause us to pump the brakes when it comes to using observable righteousness as the gauge of whether or not somebody's a Christian. I'm just going to say that again. Sin is wrong. We should flee from it, and we should pursue righteousness. And this text is one of countless that should cause us to pump the brakes in only using observable righteousness as the gauge of who is a Christian. There are plenty of people who are very righteous, as we would define that in terms of observable behavior, who do not trust Christ at all. There are Mormons across this country that would put all of us to shame in terms of how they live their lives, in terms of observable righteousness. You know, we joke about it, right? It's like even something that is a big deal in the American church, or at least has been. You know, if you, if you were to think that something like abstinence from alcohol, let's say, is the high watermark of sanctification, well, that's fine. A Muslim would agree with you. But then the Mormons will come in and shame us all for drinking coffee because caffeine is not okay, right? We cannot use merely observable standards of righteousness in gauging what's going on with an individual as they stand before God. The point of this, do not misunderstand me. The point of this is not that sin is just no big deal. That's ridiculous. Sin is a big deal. None of this is an excuse for sin. It ought not be understood that way. The point, though, is that God saves sinners. God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't just save likable, upright people. My goodness. There are a lot of people in the church who are difficult to deal with. I mean, sometimes many of us can feel like, yeah, it can be harder in my relationships at church than it is at work or whatever, just because sometimes people at work are easier to get along with. That may be true. God doesn't just save likable, upright people. He saves wretches in need of mercy. And he gives us the righteousness of his son. And we don't deserve that righteousness. What's more, many of us will commit sins as Christians that are shameful. It's not an excuse. It's the truth. 
But God will keep us through faith and repentance unto salvation. Here's, this is astonishing too, as you think about Abraham's life. A lot of times we think today, like, all right, well, Abraham, he really, really blew it right here in chapter 12. I mean, I, surely he's going to learn from this experience with Sarai. He'll never do anything like this again. Well, he does in chapter 20. The same thing again. We may even commit the same sins again. Yet at the end of it all, Abraham and us, we will be finally saved on account of Christ and his righteousness. It's the only hope for a sinner. Now, as you sit here and you think about all that, you think about Abraham's sin and the mercy and the grace that was shown to him, and you think about your sin, and you think about how you've fallen on your face, and you're grieved, and you swear you're never going to do it again, and yet you fall again. As you think about that, and God is merciful, and God is gracious, and God says, in my son, you're righteous. That gospel truth, I trust nobody in this room hears that and says, you know, I think going out of here and sinning sounds like a good idea. Nobody, nobody, who is trusting Christ, hears of that mercy and that grace and says, great, I'm just going to go send the daylights out of the thing. It's not how we respond. We are gripped by that mercy. We are gripped by that grace and by that love. And we thank God for Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And then we pray that God would give us grace, that we might go and pursue righteousness, and that we might go and not sin. Lastly, before we leave this particular section of Genesis 12, the reason that I'm talking the way that I am today, not only because I think it's here in the text, and I think it has a lot to do with how we're saved and what this looks like in this fallen world, I'm doing this and talking this way because we would do well to talk honestly about the lives of saints as they are described on the pages of Scripture. We would do well to talk honestly about the lives of saints as they're described on the pages of Scripture. We ought not whitewash things. We ought not sort of dumb this down and do the flannel board thing as though there's no sin to see here. The Scriptures are such a gift to those who seek to be honest about our struggle with sin. They're a gift to see how God's people have always fought against sin and often lose. Yet God triumphs over our sin in his grace. What a gift that is. Are there things that are commendable about Abraham's life? Absolutely, and we're going to consider them. But there are plenty of things about his life and the lives of other saints in the Bible that are far from commendable. He would be the first to say so. This is why, in preaching through Genesis, we're not taking a break to do a seven-part series on how to be like Abraham or whoever. I mean, pick your character, how to be like David, dare to be a Daniel. We don't do that here. Why? Because Abraham or David or Daniel would be the first to say, be like me? That's not a good idea. You won't be like me in terms of the things that I did. Seriously. If we were going to do a men's retreat or something, and we're going to give a talk on 
I don't know, you know, what it looks like to be a, a godly man. I can think of a number of men sitting here this morning who have not sold their wives out to defilement for their own protection and profit. But we would fall over if I were to say, hey, we're going to do a, a three-part talk in this men's retreat on the life of Ron Diaz because he's a, he's a godly man. People would wig out. But again, this is how we treat the Old Testament sometimes. It's crazy. Abraham would tell us, there's only one thing about me that you would want to imitate, and that's to believe God. There's one thing. If there's one thing about me that you want to imitate, it's to believe in the one who justifies the ungodly like you and me. Believe in Jesus, God's promised one who has saved us from our sins. That's what he would say. Abraham's best moments, it's clear, even in his upright deeds, his best moments are where he took God at his word and acted accordingly. He would say that. Take God at his word and act accordingly. Which all brings us to point two of part one. I realize it's complicated. Big heading, part one. Small heading, point two. We're going to think about Abram and Lot now for just a moment. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 13 is the section we're going to sort of fly over here. In verse 1, we read that Abram and Sarai head back to the land of Canaan with all their possessions, and Lot is with them. And then in verses 2 to 7, we're told that Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And we were talking at an elders meeting the other night because one of the things that we do in every elders meeting, we have two a month, but we read the sermon text for the upcoming Sunday and just pray, thank God for something in the text together. And after we read the text the other night, Rob was like, man, we sometimes forget, like these people's lives were, they were interesting and at times epic. I mean, this, this is a wealthy man who had a lot of possession. And this dude's about to take 318 people and wreck shop in the cover of darkness here in a little bit. I mean, this was not some just domesticated, flannel board life, right? It was a lot going on. So he's wealthy. We read about that. They journey to where he had made an altar before between Bethel and Ai. You can look back up to chapter 12 and verse 8 for that reference. And he again calls on the name of the Lord. And then we're told that Lot also had a great amount of possessions to the extent that the land couldn't support them both because of all of their possessions and their livestock and their herdsmen and all this stuff. Like, there's a lot of stuff, and so they need to separate so that they've got space. So in order that strife not develop, Abram, beginning in verse 8, he acts with a lot of humility, a lot of wisdom. He suggests, hey, there shouldn't be any strife between us. We're family. So why don't we separate? There's tons of land. Let's separate from each other so that we all got room. Wherever you want to go, you get first choice. Wherever you want to go, go, and I'll take what's left. Lot chooses the Jordan Valley, we're told, because it was well watered. It even looked like the Garden of the Lord. Or it looked like Egypt, right? Think the Nile River, right? It looks, it's verdant. It's lush, right? So he chooses that land. Just a brief observation. Again, just something we see throughout the scriptures. Lot chose the land that looked the best. But what appeared to have the greatest blessing in one sense ends up being the place that would be destroyed. It's interesting how the Lord works in this fallen world. 
This choice of where to settle is the beginning of all sorts of problems for Lot. We're going to read about those in the coming chapters. Suffice it to say, again, that appearances are deceiving. Our eyes in this life lie to us, and they lie to us often. Lot ends up, we read, pitching his tent as far as Sodom. And that, of course, is one of the cities that is famously destroyed by the Lord, and we'll get there. And then we're told that the men of that city were wicked, which is just, again, like a teaser as to the judgment that's coming. Abram, in the midst of all of this, settles in the land of Canaan, which brings us now to point three of part one. We're going to look at verses 14 to 18 of chapter 13. The heading on this is a reiteration of the land promise, a reiteration of the land promise. So God had already promised Abram and his offspring a land back in chapter 12 and verse 7. He's going to reiterate this here. In verses 14 and 15, the Lord tells Abram to look in every direction. Look north, look south, look east, look west. And he says everything that you see is going to be given to you. It's going to be given to you and your offspring forever. Verse 16, the Lord again promises Abram that many descendants will come from him. A nation, a people is going to come from you. He's already told him this too. And then in verse 17, he tells Abram to walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you, he says. So this was a symbolic thing in this era of history. To walk over land, to place one's feet on land was to exercise ownership of it. So this is what's going on, for example, in Ruth chapter 4. If you've ever read that story where Boaz is buying the land from another man and that man gives him his sandal and you're like, what in the world is going on with that? Well, that's what this is. My shoes that used to walk that land, I'm giving them to you because that land now belongs to you. It's no longer mine. So that's what's going on here. God's like, basically, walk this land because I'm giving it to you. It's going to be yours. And then in verse 18, Abram moves his tent and settles near the Oaks of Mamre, who is an Amorite that is going to be an ally of Abram. We're going to read more about him later. So this moves us all out of part one into part two. Let's continue to wake our way through the text. Part two is going to be where we're going to consider chapter 14. And I'm just going to go ahead and say that Genesis 14 is really about Melchizedek. And you're like, Melchizedek who? Melchizedek. We're going to talk about him in just a minute. So that's where we're headed. All of this is a buildup to that encounter that's only three verses long, but has tons of ramifications and implications for the rest of Scripture. So point one of part two. Abram rescues Lot from enemy kings. Abram rescues Lot from enemy kings. We're going to look at verses 1 to 16. Verses 1 to 9 has a lot of names that are hard to read in it, and there's a lot of words there basically to say that these five kings went to war against these four other kings. Right? There was one king, Keterlaomer, who was in authority over these other kings, and they rebel against him. They don't want him to rule over them and reign over them anymore. In verses 10 to 12, Keterlaomer and his forces are victorious. They take all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah because they would have been, we trust, going around and conquering these cities, right? So they would have taken everything. And they are taking along with them Lot and his possessions because he, again, had settled near Sodom. So they're taking Lot and all of his stuff. Then in verse 13, a person who has escaped all of this fray comes and tells Abram what's happened. So this is where we also learn of Abram's three allies, his friends, Mamre, Eshkel, and Aner. They're three Amorites who are friends of his. They're mentioned there. Then in verses 14 to 16, 
is when Abram is going to take trained men of his household, we're told it's 318 guys, and pursues the enemy's forces. Now, under the cover of darkness, Abram and his forces are victorious in what must have been nothing short of a miraculous intervention. I mean, this is 318 people. I mean, these are not the Spartan warriors. This is not Leonidas and his 300, right? This is Abram and 318 men trained, but nonetheless going against the armies of multiple kings and being victorious. Clearly, the Lord was with them. Abram brings back all the possessions that were taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. He brings back Lot along with all of his stuff, and he brings back the people who were taken by these enemy kings. So that's what's happened there. Point two of part two, Abram and the king of Sodom. Abram and the king of Sodom. We're going to look at verses 17 to 24 here. Not the Melchizedek piece, but Abram is going to have an interaction with one of these kings. The king of Sodom, of course, he had been defeated, right, in battle by Keterlaomer and his forces. But then Abram had gone and had gotten back all of the possessions and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So this king is coming out to meet Abram in the aftermath of all of this, and they're going to sort this out. Who belongs to what? Or what belongs to who? And all this stuff, the spoils of war and whatnot. That's what they're going to do. So they meet in the Valley of Sheba, we're told, which is the king's valley. Verses 18 to 20, there's this interjection of Melchizedek, the king of Salem. He's not been mentioned before. He's not going to be mentioned thereafter. He shows up for three verses, and then we move forward. We're going to come back to him. In verses 21 and 24, the real dialogue goes down between the king of Sodom and Abram. So in verse 21, the king asks for the people. He says, let me have the people of my city, of my kingdom, but you take all the goods. In verses 22 and 23, Abram refuses that because he says, I've raised my hand. I've made an oath to the Lord that I wouldn't take anything from you that doesn't belong to me, lest you should say that you made me rich. I'm not going to take your stuff. I'm only going to take the fair share. So he's dealing in an upright way here. He's concerned for the Lord's honor. He doesn't want to be unnecessarily attached to this king of a wicked people. That's fair. But he also is just operating in an upright manner. I only want what's due to me. He's only going to take his portion of the spoils. And then he also says to let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre, his friends, his allies, have their share. We're just going to take what belongs to us. So that's what's occurred there. Now, as I said, chapter 14, the big thing in chapter 14 is Melchizedek. So that's what we're going to consider now in point three of part two, Melchizedek. That's really all you need for a header. His name, Melchizedek, literally means translated king of righteousness. He is also, we read here, the king of Salem. Now, Salem was a shortened name for Jerusalem. You can look at like Psalm 76 and other places where Jerusalem is called Salem. Salem, as many in the room will know, is related to the word shalom, which is Hebrew for peace. So it's appropriate to say that Melchizedek is not only king of righteousness, he is also king of peace. And in saying all of this, just let the reader understand, there's another one who comes later who is called by very similar things. This man, this king of righteousness and of peace, brings out bread and wine to this meeting. He is, we're told, in a parenthetical insertion of verse 18, he is priest of God most high. Now, that word priest, that concept of priest has never been uttered once in the scriptures until right here. It's the first time it shows up. 
And the priesthood is not going to be established in terms of under Aaron and the Levitical order for quite some time. So just to be clear, like this is very, very interesting, right? This is a big, significant thing that's going on because we have a man who shows up. He's a priest and a king. He is associated with Jerusalem. He is king of righteousness and king of peace. Melchizedek shows up for these three verses here in Genesis 14, but he is significant in the rest of Scripture, but pointedly in two passages that I want us to think about today. He is significant in Psalm 110, which is one of the most important psalms in the Psalter, and he is a big piece of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. So Melchizedek serves as one of the best examples of how later writers of Scripture, inspired of the Spirit, understood Scripture that had been written before. This is why we talk all the time. If we were just to take Moses and his intention of writing about Melchizedek, we would miss so much of what the Lord intends us to know and see. Because David wrote of Melchizedek, and the writer to the Hebrews wrote of Melchizedek, and are interpreting this, inspired of God's Holy Spirit, to help us understand what in the world is going on here when it comes to our redemption and our salvation. And even, they're going to help us understand how it is that this character, this figure of Melchizedek, is connected to Christ and what he would do. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Psalm 110. We're just going to look at a few verses. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry. I'm just going to read these verses. You can listen to them read. So Psalm 110 is a well-known psalm to many. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110 and verse 1 is the most quoted verse of the Old Testament in the New. That makes sense. Because it is so significant when it comes to the Messiah and who he is. Psalm 110, verse 1 and following. A psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Then this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this Messiah is not only David's Lord. He's going to be a king that language of a scepter and those things and him ruling. But he's also going to be a priest, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he says. So now if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. It is always good to understand Scripture with Scripture. Now, just really quick, I, just truth in advertising, Hebrews has become my favorite book in the Bible. Many who know me know that. I can't wait to preach it. So I'm going to restrain myself here and not say too much about the book, but I want to just give you a brief idea of what the point of it is before we look at chapter 7. So the argument of the book of Hebrews, essentially, is that Jesus is greater than angels, than Moses, than Aaron, right? The Levitical priesthood that was established under him. And essentially this, that what existed before Christ was insufficient to save God's people, but Christ is sufficient. That's effectively the point. What existed before Christ as well was ultimately about him and what he would come to do. 
So you want to read something that will absolutely explode any categories that you've ever had about the point of the Old Testament, read Hebrews. And so the conclusion of the author of the Hebrews is that we should not return to what existed before. The law, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the temple, none of it. We ought not neglect such a great salvation. Well, what's that? That's what Christ has done. Don't go back. So that's the point of the letter. So two huge questions, I think, that are in the mind of the writer to the Hebrews that he is answering in Hebrews 7. One, how could Jesus, who was of the tribe of Judah, be a priest? He's not of the tribe of Levi, right? Many will know that it is the Levites who were the priests. How can a person who is from the tribe of Judah be a priest? One. Two, how is it that all of the insufficiencies of the Old Testament priesthood are brought to perfection in Christ? How is it that all the insufficiencies of the Old Testament priesthood are now brought to perfection in Jesus? Those are the two questions. So let's just look at some of this chapter. I'm going to read some of it and comment as we go. It kind of speaks for itself, frankly. Beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We just read about this. And to him, Abraham, a portion, a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, that is, that's recorded in Scripture, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Then in verses 4 to 10, the argument there is that Abraham, who is a patriarch of the people of God, paid a tithe to Melchizedek. He gave him 10% of everything. And the writer will argue in that sense, because Abraham is representing his offspring, Levi paid a tithe through Abraham to Melchizedek. He also makes mention that it is Melchizedek who blesses Abraham, not Abraham who blesses Melchizedek, and the greater always blesses the lesser. So in all of these ways, this is how superior the priesthood of Melchizedek was to the Levitical priesthood that would come later. The Levitical priesthood was far inferior to what Melchizedek represented. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, therefore he blesses him. Abraham pays him the tithe, and so does Levi and Abraham. Now, verses 11 through 25, this is where it gets epic with respect to Jesus. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Well, if the Levitical priesthood could do it, why would we need anything different? Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of the law being who can be a priest, right? For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. He's talking about Christ now. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Only Levites were priests. 
This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110 and verse 4. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So Jesus has been made high priest by the one who swore to him that he would be made high priest. Well, who's that? It's God the Father has said, you are a priest forever to the Son. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, who ministered to Abraham, is a type of the one to come. He is a pointer, like screaming from the rooftops about Jesus, the great high priest of God's people who was to come. The one who, once and for all, would offer the sacrifice of himself in order to accomplish salvation. This one, Jesus, the great high priest of God Most High, is now seated in heaven, and he makes intercession for us. He advocates for us when we sin. And he is able, the text tells us, to save us to the uttermost. I want to conclude our time today with just a reflection. This is effectively a reflection on faith and the gospel. But thinking about this in light of Abraham and his life and the things that we've even seen in our text today. Abraham's faith, as I mentioned earlier, clearly falters in this text. His trust in God is weak enough or his concerns about life are strong enough that he ends up doing something that isn't commendable when it comes to his wife and how they interact with Pharaoh and the like. He's governed by fear and not faith, whatever kind of cliche thing you want to put on that. He's governed by self-preservation and self-interest, not trust in the promises of God. In other words, Abraham's faith and his life is like yours, and it's like mine. So we need to be careful, I think, when we talk about faith, that we not make too much about faith itself. Because sometimes you hear well-meaning Christians talk about faith as though it is the thing in and of itself that saves people. You do. This, this that I'm about to say may in some way say, like, brother, aren't you splitting hairs here? Don't think so. I think it makes the world of difference. To say that we are saved by faith as though faith saves is a far cry from what the Scriptures teach. I'm not meaning to be a shock doc in making this statement, but I would stake my ministry on it. Faith never saved anybody. Faith never saved anybody. Faith does not save sinners. Jesus saves sinners. That distinction matters. 
Faith, brothers and sisters, is simply the means. It is simply the vehicle or the conduit or whatever kind of illustration you want to use. It is the object of our faith, namely Jesus himself, who saves us. The emphasis must always be on the object, not our own inner fervor. The emphasis is on Christ and his work, not some kind of intensity within me. In certain kinds of thinking, in the church, it's as though we are to constantly be evaluating the intensity of our faith. And depending on what we find, our salvation may very well hang in the balance every moment. The problem with that is that our faith ebbs and flows just like Abraham's did. We're going to talk about saving faith. Well, what is that? As our confession of faith would define it, it is receiving, resting, and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. All of it. There's been, there have been, excuse me, number, a number of wonderful examples of what this looks like for Christians. Don Carson gave an illustration of this one time when he was talking about the Passover and a, like a hypothetical, theoretical conversation between two, two people, two Israelites, and he, they're, one, they're talking to each other, and the one guy is just super confident about the whole thing. The Lord's told us what to do. All we got to do is you know, put the blood on the doorpost and eat it and, and do it in haste and all these kinds of things. And this other guy is just absolutely wrecked in his mind. He's, he's unsure. He's afraid. What do I, you know, how's this going to go? But he ends up, you know, he puts the blood on the doorposts and eats the meal and does it in haste and all those kinds of things. And the angel of death comes through the land that night. And whose house did he visit? Neither. Right? It's not about the nature of our faith. It's about the nature of the one who made the promise. Right? That's good. Another one that is epic. Alistair Begg, many may know who he is. He once gave a wonderful presentation of the gospel. And I'm just going to kind of put it in my own words. And I'm going to do the same thing that he did and take some liberty in terms of how the last judgment will go. We're going to talk a little bit about angels and things like this because it's how people generally speak. You guys bear with me in that. It's like the proverbial youth conference thing where you're asked, if you were to die tonight in a car accident and you were to stand before the angel, before the Lord, and you were to be asked, effectively, on what basis, why should you be allowed entry into heaven? If you begin that answer in the first person, you're wrong. If it's because I anything, you're wrong. Because I believe. Because I continue. Because I obey. No, it's because he did it. It's because Christ did it. That's good. And then he goes on, Alistair does, and he talks about the thief on the cross. And he's like, man, I can't wait in one sense to meet that guy and say, how did that go down for you? I mean, here you were cussing, cussing Jesus with your friend or with your fellow criminal. You'd never been to a Bible study, never been baptized. You didn't know anything about church membership. How did this shake out for you? And you made it. What happened? And he said, can you imagine when that man stands, you know, before the angel, the angel asks him, on what basis are you here? And the man says, I, I'm not sure. The thief does. 
The angel presses him. Okay, well, I may have to go get my supervisor here. The supervisor angel comes, and he says, okay, again, reiterates to the thief, on what basis are you here? I, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I mean, I don't know. Well, do you know anything about the doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith? And he's like, I've never heard of it in my life. Okay, well, immediately then, let's go to the doctrine of Scripture. What about that? It's crickets. So in a frustrated way, the angel looks at the thief, and he says, on what basis are you here? And the man looks at him and he says, because the man on the middle cross told me I could come. That's good. That is good news. Why should you be allowed entry into heaven? Because he did it for you. On what basis are you here? Because the man on the middle cross told you you could come. You doggone right, because that is it, friends. He told me I could come, and I'm here. This is the nature of the good news. And his word, the one who said we could come, his word stands always. And the one who says that we can come is the only hope for sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we don't take for granted that we can call you Father. And that's only on the basis of Christ, we know. And at the same time, we're astonished that you love us. Lord, we pray that you would give us faith in Jesus, that we would look to him, that in our moments of, moments of weakest faith and greatest struggle, that we would be reminded that the man on the middle cross told us we could come and that he has us and that he has accomplished salvation. And then we pray what you would do, Father, by your spirit, that you would take these things and drive them deeply into our hearts and change us. Change us by your love and your grace and your mercy. Stir us up to love each other and to do good works. Not because you need that. You've approved of us in Christ, but because our neighbors need it. We need each other. So we pray for you to continue to work in us because you love us and because you have us. We pray that you would even do that as we come to your table this morning. And we ask of it in Jesus' name. Amen.